Welcome to the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I interview business leaders who are committed to their own growth and the development of everyone on their team. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I love introducing you to people who are committed to working on their own development and to helping others become the best versions of themselves. That's also a key focus of my company, Grow Strong Leaders. We publish software tools and books for improving the way people connect with each other at work, and you can learn more at growstrongleaders.com. Today, I am really excited to introduce you to my guest, Marcel Donna. Marcel, welcome to my show. Thank you, and thanks for having me. How exciting. Well, I'm, I am very excited, and as we, people hear us get into our conversation, they will be too. Marcel is the CEO of Level 5 Partners, a global network of uniquely trained executive coaches working with multinational organizations, teams, and leaders. He's considered one of the world's authorities in mind-body leadership, a combination of mindfulness and body awareness. In 2020, he was voted Executive Coach of the Year by Singapore Prestige Brands. And in 2016, he was awarded the Global Coaching Leadership Award. And today we're going to focus on Marcel's book. And I think you'll love the title, Five Energies of Horrible Bosses and How Not to Become One. So Marcel, this is such an intriguing book. Before we jump into it, and there's so much I want to cover with you about it. It was an excellent book. I highly recommend all of my listeners get a copy of it. Tell us first about your journey to doing the work you're doing today with leaders and teams. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's, it's, wow, it's a, it's a long, long journey. I'm 56. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting on with age and it, it's been a while. But an, um, an interesting thing, you know, that I always share, especially you know, with, my, with my clients as well, is um, I, I don't actually come from a corporate background. And um, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong martial artist. And um, I started my career in the military, actually, for, for you know, 10 years or so, um, before I ended up becoming a personal trainer, helping people. And it was actually the work that I was doing as a personal trainer that inspired me to want to find ways to help people better. And I ended up just evolving as, you know, from a trainer to a coach to a wellness coach, and then ended up working with corporates and the corporate space and ended up evolving into, into, you know, kind of that leadership um, space that I'm, that I'm, that I've been in now for, you know, the past uh, 12 years or so. Um, but the, but the, I think what's, what's important for me is, is how I like to help my clients is, and I think one of the reasons why I have such a great impact on them is because I have, a, I have a tendency to see the world through a different lens than a lot of other people do. And it actually comes from a history of mental illness. Um, you know, I, I struggled with mental, mental illness when I was, when I was a young adult. Um, I've, I also had a stint as an alcoholic, um, abusing drugs. And, you know, so I, I come from a very, you know, different eclectic background. And, um, and I had to learn over the years that my brain was just wired differently than the average other person's. And, and for many years, I thought that was a curse. I really, you know, I, I, I did not like the way that, you know, that I, I had difficulty fitting in 
into the standard norms, right, of, of how a person, especially from my generation, would normally kind of grow up and evolve into, you know, some form of corporate life and develop a career and white picket fence. And, you know, I, I had none of that. I was, I was in a very different space. But over the, over the decades, as I matured and evolved myself and as I learned and studied, and I, I, I ended up pursuing a master's degree in, you know, neuroscience just to figure out my own brain because it was, it was so weirdly different from everybody else's. But, but what I learned from that is that, that because my brain works differently, it also makes me very unique. And, um, and that unique perspective that I have very often, I'll sit on the other side of the table with, with a leader and they'll be telling me, you know, their challenges, whatever's going on, what they have to work on. And I hear that through, through my body, basically. So I, I have a tendency to listen with my body and not so much with what happens between my ears. And that's something that I've always done. I've always been very uh, sensitive to vibrations and energy and all of these kind of things. And, um, and, so, and so as I'm listening, um, I, can, I can really hear things that maybe a lot of people miss. And that makes me curious, right? So, so I'm, I'm naturally a very curious person. And so I start asking questions about, hey, where does that come from? What is it, what's happened there? And, and so it helps them expand their own thinking and their own perspectives in ways that they probably never would have thought of doing. And that very often helps them come to insights and new knowledge about themselves and the, the situation that they're in. And so I learned that, you know, what I thought previously was a curse is actually a gift. And and once I learned how to package that and how to work with that, um, that's, uh, you know, that, that became kind of part of my trademark as a coach. And so over the years, I've also been training other coaches how to do the same thing, how to be you know, much more present and, and really being able to listen with a whole being uh, rather than just simply listening to the context of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I noticed you left out <laughs> relates to part of the title of your book on being a horrible boss. So if yes. we could take a little detour for a minute so my Absolutely. listeners will understand what your own journey, why you labeled yourself a horrible boss at one point. Yeah, perfect. And, um, and, and this was, you know, probably it was about, what, 17 years ago now. So it's, it's, it's a while ago. And it was still in a time where I was still trying to figure myself out. And, and, and you know, working in this life of a, of a personal trainer, I had this dream, too, of, of being a business owner. And, um, and at, at one point, I actually, you know, got to that point where I could find investors and start my own fitness business and, and ended, up, ended up opening one of the largest athletic training centers in Southeast Asia. I was already living in Asia at the time. And, um, and, I, and I discovered that, uh, you know, opening a, opening a gym and starting a business, uh, it, it, there's a lot that comes with that with regards to hiring people, being able to put the people in the right place, a lot of business strategy, marketing, you name it. There's, there's so much there. And what I actually discovered for myself was that I was so deeply passionate about the work that I was doing as, as, as a trainer. And I, I really believed that I had kind of cracked the nut in terms of how to develop, you know, kind of super athletes and, uh, and coming totally from a place of ego. Um, you know, really thought that, you know, I was God's gift to trainers and, um, and, and, you know, when I started bringing in staff, I wanted, I wanted my staff to do things my way. 
and uh, and and run you know kind of you know run the the the, the club and the gym um, in, according to my vision. And um, the unfortunate thing about that is that I also had business partners. I had you know three other business partners who and who also invested in the business. And um, you know not once did I did I listen? <laughs> did I you know follow their uh, you know, f- follow their ideas or perspectives. I, I was very, very fixed in my way of how I wanted to do things. And and what I what I later learned about that was that you know I was I was simply driven by this strong sense of belief that I knew that I, what I was talking about. And and, um, and because I was stuck in what I like to call my own space of knowing, my knowing pillar, so to speak, I didn't expand my um, you know, kind of ability in my vision to be open to other perspectives and other ideas. And the unfortunate thing was, of course, is that the business suffered. And, um, you know, my staff were unhappy because they couldn't do their own things. There was, you know, there was no autonomy in the organization. There was um, not even for the partners, right? You know, so, so that then created an atmosphere, what I like to call the climate. We can, we can talk more about that. But, it, it, you know, walking into that place was just, I, I remember, you know, walking into my own business and standing in the middle of the business going, I don't want to be here, right? <laughs> you know, because, uh, because it, was, it was such a horrible atmosphere. Mm. Um, and um, and that, really, that really affected me because, you know, I, I take in a lot of those vibrations, not knowing that I was the one actually creating the weather. And, um, and so, so, you know, I walked in and go, you know, I hate it here. And so ended up uh, leaving, ended up selling my shares and say, you know what, I don't like this. This is not for me. And, um, and, and a great learning lesson for me was the moment I left the business did better. And so, and so that was, that was a good slap to the ego because I, I discovered that I was my own worst enemy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think, I think this, this is something that we see a lot in, um, you know, and other leaders as well, especially founders, entrepreneurs, you know, people who are so deeply passionate about their business that, um, you know, they, they, they forget to kind of take off the blinders and allow themselves greater perspective and leveraging on, on you know, the people who are really, really smart and very capable to work with them and to build something that is much, much greater. And I learned that lesson the hard way. And I always, I always tell, you know, kind of my, my friends and stuff that it was the most expensive MBA I, I could ever have done. But it was a really valuable learning lesson because that, it's actually what, what inspired me to want to learn more about leadership mm-hmm. and, um, and, and kind of, you know, triggered me into going into, into leadership coaching. Um, without you know, that experience, I wouldn't be here. Yeah, I think it gives you so much credibility with the leaders you work with because you're not mm. pretending you had it all right. Uh, you have a story to share that is relatable. And I think that's very powerful. There are so many different important points you make in your book. And mm-hmm. you have a real, to me, gift and strength in in coming up with these different models and then giving examples and telling stories that just really bring them to life. So the first one I want to start with is what you've already referenced, the weather, because Mm -hmm. you talk about when you walk into an organization, you're assessing and you call it, you know, the culture, but you refer to it as the weather. So talk about the aspects of weather and what those translate into as far as a culture. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we spend so much time, you know, I mean, companies do, you know, culture surveys and they're, you know, they spend so much time really trying to quantify, right? What, how, you know, how, how, where is the state of the culture of the organization? That's all great stuff. But really at the end of the day, just like when I walked into, you know, my own company and kind of, you know, felt the weather and man, this, this is not good. Um, we can do the same, you know, and, um, and we all have this ability to, to sense our environment, right? It's not, it's not something that we necessarily have to learn. You know, it's, it's just simply being able to take in our, our environment in the moment to just stand still and just allow ourselves to absorb that energy. And, um, and, and just from the many experiences that I have, not just creating my own climates in the organization, but also just working with, with so many other leaders, you know, I like, to, I like to group them into kind of three, three different types of climates that we, that we, that we feel when, we're, when we walk into any company, really. I mean, even a restaurant, you walk into a restaurant, you can feel it right away. You know of that restaurant where the things are actually running properly or, or whether they're not just simply from that energy that you're actually feeling. And, and what those three climates really are is, is, you know, number one is the sun shining, right? Is it, is it one of those beautiful sunny days where everybody's kind of walking with a little bit of a bounce in their stride and everybody's smiling and they're relaxed and they're having a good time, like almost like they're at the beach, you know? And, um, you know, is that, is that the atmosphere that you're able to take in? Of course, the second one is, is where things get a little bit overcast, right? You know, it's like the weather's getting a little bit gloomy, you know, try, try walking outside with, you know, very gray clouds outside and be equally excited and be equally enthusiastic just as you are when it's a fantastic day, right? When it's beautiful weather. It's difficult to do that because, because that's the energy that we're actually receiving. It's a different type of energy. And so, so we have the same thing as we walk into our company. You know, is it, is it, is it overcast? You know, is it gray or is the sun shining? And of course, the last one is, is storming, right? You know, is it, is it raining? Is it, is it miserable? And, uh, you know, when we walk outside and it's raining and it's miserable, we don't, you know, we don't have the tendency to want to go to the beach and say, hey, guys, let's, uh, you know, let's have a party on the beach. And instead, we want to go in hiding, right? You know, we want to hide from the rain because it's cold and uncomfortable and it's wet. And, and, and we feel the same thing when we walk into our workspace, you know, and um, and simply through observation, we can we can really kind of you know put the put the finger on the spot and kind of say, hey, you know, where where are we right now with regards to that culture? You know, it's um, I I remember having this wonderful conversation many years ago with with a leader who who did the same thing, and and he said something to me. He says, you know, when I don't hear laughter in the hallways, I know something's wrong. And I thought that was a real great little mm. pointer, right? You know, it's like if, if your people aren't having a good time, something's, so even if they're working really hard and they're just not having a good time, something's not right. And, and that's when as a leader, you want to take notice and you want to say, hey, something might be up here. Let's investigate. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's, it's such a simple metaphor to use mm. for someone to pay attention to that um, energy. One of the other things that you brought out that I really like is this idea of the three pillars of wisdom. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned one of them earlier. So talk about what the three of them are and what does that look like? Yeah. And, and, and this is something that 
I learned from, you know, just many years of, of practicing martial arts and, you know, working with some wonderful, you know, martial arts masters, especially the grandmasters out there who have been dedicated their entire lives to, to this art form, right? And, and what, I, what I always was, was deeply moved by is, is when you take somebody who has is, who is, is reached such a deep level of mastery, they, 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 they tend to kind of appear with this aura, right, of, of wisdom. And, um, and, I've always, and I've always been intrigued by that, right? What, what is it that really kind of helps us access that wisdom? And if I, if I think back to all of the people that I would consider really wise, as it comes down to three things, the first one is, is what I like to call the knowing pillar of those three pillars. And that's, that's simply the stuff that we know, right? You know, kind of from our experiences in our lives and what we've learned and all of that, kind of that knowledge that, we, that we've accumulated over a certain amount of time, right? That, that becomes a very important pillar. The second one is the feeling pillar, right? That's, that's really about our emotions, being, being connected with, you know, kind of, you know, um, a, a good analogy is, is you know, if, if knowing is in the head, then the feeling part is in the heart, right? So the head and the heart combination. And the third one is, is the sensing pillar. That's, that's what's in the gut. And, um, you know, when, we, when we're able to put all three of those together, right, knowing, feeling, and sensing, head, heart, and gut, that's when we use our whole being as, as a way of taking in information and, and being able to assimilate what we think, what we feel, what we sense in a way that helps us move in a direction maybe that we had not considered before. And something that I find really interesting is, is you know, the analogy of, for example, a manager versus a leader. And, um, and something that I've, I found in my experience is that, that when we take really exceptional leaders, um, they operate with a different, I guess, priority than, uh, than the average manager would do. So most managers, most people are hired into roles for, for the most part because they're really strong in the knowing pillar, right? Organizations are driven by data. And so, and so we need people in organizations who manage that data and, um, you know, managing processes and all of these kind of things. And so, so that knowing pillar becomes really important for them. Um, and then, of course, the, the feeling and the sensing pillars, not so much because there's, it's very difficult to quantify what you're feeling and what you're sensing. And so they might use some of that feeling and sensing, but it's mostly used to to kind of say, hey, how do I feel about this data? How do I feel about this information? And, you know, does it seem right for me? And if it seems like the right thing to do, then they'll do it, right? As where leaders have a tendency to operate in a different order, they tend to operate more in that sensing, feeling, and knowing space. So for them, knowing the data, knowing the nitty gritty of things is not so important, right? So for them, they need to be able to walk into a meeting really being able to sense the room and to be able to really sense, you know, where is this business going? You know, what's actually really happening from the space? And so, so that's where vision comes from. That's where creativity comes from, all of those kind of things. And so, so for them, it's leading with the gut first. And then, and then how do I feel about what I'm sensing? You know, do I feel excited? Do I feel not excited? Am I scared? Am I, you know, and, and having that level of emotional intelligence, is, that's why it's so important for leaders to have that 
is because that connects them to that feeling pillar. And then they might then look at some of that data and say, how does the data support what I'm actually feeling here? And, um, and that transition between kind of from a manager to a leader is something that can be very challenging for many leaders, especially many aspiring leaders, uh, you know, people who want to grow into, you know, C-suite levels and all of these kind of things is, is where do they learn to make that transition? Where do they learn to trust their guts and their hearts, right? Who's teaching them this? And, you know, and because, because organizations tend to promote people who, were previous, you know, in the previous role were really good at what they did, meaning that they were very good in that knowing pillar, it can be a really big struggle for a lot of leaders to, to transition into that kind of more senior leadership space. And so, you know, if you're, if you're an aspiring leader or you're, you know, aspiring to become a better leader or more efficient leader, then this is something to look for, right? To kind of say, hey, where am I on these three pillars? What, you know, am I really maybe too reliant still on this kind of knowing pillar where I like to get stuck in my details and, and like to know the nitty gritty of things? Or am I, am I willing to let that go? Am I willing to just give permission to, you know, the other people that I've hired to take care of that? And instead, I'm going to sit more in that in that feeling and sensing space so I can really kind of get an idea of where my team is going or where this division of the organization is going, et cetera. And that's, that's such an important skill for, for people to learn. And that's what I find really triggers in ourselves our wisdom because that pulls everything together for us to then really be able to assimilate everything that we're knowing, feeling, and sensing, and then being able to make decisions based on that. Yes, it's so clear, those three. And I remember in the book, you were telling this story about working with executives who tended mm -hmm. to focus on that knowledge piece. Mm -hmm. And you shared a story with them from your high school experience around mm -hmm. losing. And I just loved that story. It was actually, I thought, quite profound. And I would love for you to share that briefly to sure. illustrate what what um how that applied to this whole knowing piece and helping those executives sort of make that mental transition that you were just yep. talking about yeah exactly so um so you know when i was when i was in high school um i was one of the greatest gifts that that my mom gave me and, and unfortunately she, she passed away a few weeks ago um but uh, one of the greatest gifts that she gave to me is that she introduced me to martial arts at the age of five and, um, you know, this, this was like when Bruce Lee was still alive. So, so, you know, it was a long time ago and there were no kids classes in, in martial arts. Uh, you know, as a five-year-old, I was, I was training in men's classes and, um, and, and she, she put me in, in, in martial arts because she believed that, you know, every one of us kids had to grow up like warriors because she was, you know, this, this, um, uh, you know, she, she, basically she was, you know, we were all living in political exile because uh, she was a warrior herself and she was, uh, um, you know, fighting the uh, South African, uh, you know, government's white supremacist, you know, um, regime at that, at that time. And so um, she was actually one of three white women who was jailed for her, um, you know, her political beliefs and her political activities. And so um, you know, so, so as a kid, my, my life was already <laughs> very different. And so she always, you know, she always felt firmly like, hey, you guys need to, you know, you need to be able to stand up for yourselves. You need to be this. So I'm going to throw you guys into martial arts. And of course, here we are as kids. And, um, and that was a very, you know, interesting experience. But I loved it. 
and um, and and just absolutely fell in love with martial arts. And it's something that I've always continued to practice. I've done many different martial arts. I love to explore different martial arts. And and I remember when I was when I was in high school, I was I was studying karate, and um, and as I was you know kind of growing, right? I had I, I I noticed that I had a talent for martial arts. I was pretty good at it. Um, until I actually started kind of evolving as a martial artist. And of course, you know, there were competitions where you had to, you know, fight against other fighters and all of that kind of stuff. And as I grew, um, you know, it's, it's, when I first started, it was pretty easy to win matches. And so I would grow in these kind of like provincial to then, you know, kind of national type level, um, you know, fights, right. That, that we would be in. And, and that's when I started to discover that things got harder. Uh, you know, I, uh, it, 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 I wasn't winning easily anymore. And I actually got to a point where I started losing um, a lot and, um, and became very frustrated because I, you know, I just, you know, because I was always focusing on the win and I wanted to, you know, and I, and, and so what the way that I would manage that is by training harder. Right. So I would, you know, study more, train harder and do all of this kind of stuff. But I, I just continued losing more. And um, and, and, you know, one day I, I, I remember going to my teacher and and asking my teacher, I said, you know, I don't know what's 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 wrong. Right. You know, it's like I, I whatever, everything that I'm doing, I seem to be doing all the right stuff, but I keep losing. And and he just looked at me and he just kind of said, you know, Marcel, before you can learn how to win, you have first have to learn how to lose. And uh, of course, being 16 years old, I was like, wait, what does that mean? <laughs> right? You know, being say, all I wanted to do was win. And, um, and of course, the important thing of this was, you know, the, the ability to, to, to take our losses and, and be able to see them through a different lens and, and learn and grow from them. And, and being able to ask ourselves that question of what am I missing? Right? What am I not seeing? What, what part of, you know, because for me, I would, I would basically respond by doing the same stuff over and over again, just do more of it, where in reality, there were certain things in my development as a martial artist that I was missing, that I wasn't seeing. And, um, and I had to learn how to, how to look differently at my training. And, and it, was, it was once I started to embrace losing as an opportunity to learn more about myself and to be able to figure out how to go about that, that's when all of a sudden the whole world for me opened up. And, um, and, and I think that is, that is just such an important thing in business as well, is that we, that we, are, we, we have a tendency to be so afraid of making mistakes and, and, and so-called losing, right? Because, because, you know, God forbid, Right. You know, it's, you know, we, we, we announce ourselves as a loser, but the truth is there's so much learning, there's so much growth and so much wisdom to attain from, from our losses that over time, when utilized properly, it can really help us evolve as, you know, a winning athlete or a winning organization in the future. Mm-hmm. It, it's, that's such a great, a great story. You know, one of the other models that you introduced that I really liked was WISE. You have acronyms. So this one is W-I-S-E. So just briefly explain each of those because I want to go deeper with one of them. Fantastic. Yeah, it's, you know, the, um, and and again, it's how my brain works. I, I I love things that are simple. 
I don't like I don't like things that are complicated. And so so um, so I try to dumb things down as much as possible, more more so for my own understanding and for my own brain to process. And I found that things like models and acronyms work really well for me. And so um, so so you know part of this life experience for me was really kind of understanding how do you how do you access wisdom, right? Or how do you even how do you even manifest it, right? What are the what are the steps that we really need to undertake? And um, and and of course, that wise happens to be a great uh, acronym for that. And and uh, and the first question that we need to ask, and that was the same, you know, in the example that I just used with my martial arts, is is really is what am I not seeing, right? What am I blind to? And um, and that's such a powerful question. And it's a question that I actually ask many of my clients for you know. Know, when, when, when we were coaching, you know, and, and when they're telling me about a situation, a question that I love is, what are you not seeing? You know, and, um, and, and because we have limited vision as human beings, you know, there's, there's a 360 view around us that, um, that we might not necessarily be open to. And so, and so it's, it's looking for those blind spots, right? It's trying to find out, you know, what am I not seeing? And therefore being able to utilize the resources and the people around us to really be able to, you know, kind of make sure that we can see as much of the picture as we can in order for us to really be able to fully understand where we are and what we need to do. And it's, and it's something that I see, uh, you know, many, many people forgetting, right. You know, they, they stick it, they stick to that knowing pillar, right. You know, and they, and, and that knowing pillar puts the blinders on. And, the, and one of the challenges with just living in that knowing pillar is, is that we then start to believe, right? That what we're thinking is the truth, is fact. And, and when, when our beliefs become facts, and we see this in many aspects of the world, we see it in world politics, we see it in, you know, in so many different areas, is that when we choose to live with those blinders on, um, we become limited in our capacity to see the big picture. You know, and um, the same thing happened to me when I was running my gym, as well as, you know, it's, it's, it's happened to me in many, in many occasions in my life as well. And it's that ability to take those blinders off and say, hey, let's look at kind of a broader area here and let's try and find my blind spots because there are always blind spots. There's always something that I can't see. And so that's the first, that first letter. The second one is, is really around inviting curiosity. Right. It's about it's about allowing yourself to become curious about what you're not seeing and um, and trying to trying to access that that creativity within you. Um, then the third one, of course, is is and one of them that I think is the most profound is is surrendering to our most unlikely teachers. And and what I what I mean with that is that when we when we ask people for advice and when we ask people for feedback, we have a tendency to kind of pick and choose the, the, the people that we are most comfortable with. And very often those are people who have similar views as we do, right? As where if we really want to be able to explore our blind spots and be curious about it, we have to have the courage to, to be able to surrender to the teachings of people who see a very different viewpoint than we do. You know, imagine world politics. If we had that opportunity to do so as a human race is to be able to um, just simply surrender to the teachings of people, even though we might completely disagree with them. So, but to be able to say, hey, there is, there is a certain amount of wisdom within what you are saying that I can learn from, right? You know, and that I can become better, better of. 
And, um, and so, so that, that becomes a very important step. So always seeking out those opinions from people you would normally not ask, you know, an opinion of. A great example is, is the, the story of um, uh, JFK, you know, when he went in, in his whole, you know, putting a man on the moon mission, you know, in the 1960s is where um, one day he actually got inspiration from his janitor. You know, because uh, he was, you know, it was a long night, long day, long night. Things weren't moving. You know, he only had nine years to, you know, get somebody on the moon and, um, you know, getting funding and all of this kind of stuff. It wasn't as easy as, you know, people might remember. And, um, and, and one day he, he was kind of thinking about, you know, maybe, maybe this, you know, is not going to work. Maybe I won't get there. And, you know, and he finished work at like 11 o'clock at night and he, he closes the door of the Oval Office and, you know, kind of walks out in the hallway and there are two janitors polishing the floor at 11 o'clock at night. And these kind of guys, he's like, what are you doing? And, and they look up at him and they say, sir, we're putting a man on the moon, sir. You know, and, uh, and, and he, it was kind of dumbfounded by that because he, he, he understood that his what he was trying to accomplish, that even people to a janitor's level really understood the role they played in helping put a man on the moon by simply keeping the place as clean as possible. And, you know, and that was, that was such an inspiring piece. And at that moment in time, he allowed himself to be a follower rather than a leader and be inspired by, you know, his janitors. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, for an organizational leader, the same thing counts, right? Who are we allowing ourselves to be inspired by, right? You know, who are we, you know, giving permission to be our teachers? Mm. Are we really going out onto the floor and, for example, asking a janitor for advice on how we want to run the company, you know, and that's, and that's the, you know, that, that's that very important co component of surrendering to our most unlikely teachers. And of course, the, the last one is, is the ability to embrace uncertainty with enthusiasm, right? You know, as, 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 we, as we step into uncertain times, as we always are, is, is to be able to do that with a level of enthusiasm and energy that, um, that triggers a mood and an a emotion of possibility. Right. You know, as, as we, we can always you know, see our futures from a glass half empty or a glass half full. And I think for for every one of us, if we really want to be able to access as much wisdom as we as we can, we have to be able to look into the darkness with with that sense of of inspiration and um, and excitement rather than, you know, with with doom and gloom. Because the moment we start seeing our futures from a lens of fear Again, those blinders go on. Our bodies contract. We yeah. we we stop. We stop existing as the human being that we can potentially be. And um, and and you know, and that's something that we have to consciously override in order for ourselves to be able to move forward. And so, those are the four pillars. What W I S E that that really help people. You know, kind of be able to expand themselves as leaders. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to to um, you know be able to apply themselves as as wise as possible. Mm -hmm. Those are all so great, and I'm just going to summarize that one uh, piece so that we can move on to talking about energy because that's a core piece of your book. Mm -hmm. The experience that your friend Margie shared as mm -hmm. she worked at this airport and she had the responsibility one time to escort the Dalai Lama from the plane over to his transportation, something that would normally have taken 30 minutes. You know, it took her 
I forget how long now, but quite a long time just to get him off the plane and then (laughs) another couple of hours to get over to the transportation. And the reason was that he was curious. He was, you know, that second inviting curiosity, really seeking out to know the people he encountered along the way, not in a superficial way, but he really connected with them. And I thought that was quite profound because we all have those opportunities to be curious about those. And to me, your wise pieces all run together because sometimes Mm -hmm. we make judgments about who we're going to be curious with when in Mm -hmm. fact, everyone we encounter has something to to offer us that we can learn from. So that that was just a great story. And as people hopefully will get the book and read it, I think they'll find it very profound. He had what you called insatiable curiosity but let's pause, let's pause here and and or make a shift because i really want to give adequate time to talk about energy this is not something that you know really people focus on that much and i love that you've already alluded to it in in terms of picking up the vibration or picking up the energy we all do this And before we get into the details of the five different kinds of energies that you discuss in your book, give us your definition of energy, what you mean by that. Yeah, fantastic. So, um, so, so, and, and I, and I wrote this in the book as well as, you know, there's, there's the Western concept, right. Of energy with, you know, Western science with, with understanding, you know, kind of atoms and how they all interact and, and all of that kind of stuff. But then there's also the Eastern philosophy of, of energy, especially, you know, coming from, from, you know, Indian philosophies as well, as well as uh, Chinese where, you know, they talk about energy in a different, in a different way. And, um, and, and of course being a martial artist, uh, you know, I was very attracted. I've learned both philosophies and, um, and I was, you know, of course, very attracted to how could we, how could we combine both that, that Eastern as well as that Western you know, Western science philosophy and put those together to be able to create something tangible that, that we can work with. And so, so for me, the definition of energy is really is, is vibration, right? Is, um, is, is understanding um, how we interact with our environments, but also how our environment interacts with us simply by the interplay of energy that's happening, you know, at that moment in time. And when I'm, when I'm saying environment, that environment can be expanded up into space, right? So we're not, energy is not limited by, by distance or by time or anything like that. And so, so as human beings, we, we, we vibrate this energy, right? All of the cells in our bodies vibrate. And if you, if you look at them through a microscope, you'll see that all of these cells are, you know, consist of atoms that are vibrating around and they're, they're going crazy. And, and when these, when these um, all of these cells, when they are all vibrating in the same tune, as I like to call it, um, that creates a certain aura, right? That's what, that's what they talk about in, in kind of Asian philosophies as, as what our aura is. It's really the interplay of all of our trillions of cells. And what's interesting, of course, is that for example, if we, um, you know, if we become diseased, right, or, or if, even if we have a common cold, we have, uh, you know, blood pressure, you know, whatever it is, it actually changes how these cells in our body interplay with each other. And that therefore changes the tune 
that we vibrate. So if, if I'm a leader and I'm stressed, for example, or I'm, or I'm concerned, I'm worried about something, it's actually going to change how my body vibrates. And as human beings, or actually all beings on this planet, how we interact with each other is through this energy first. So, so when we are, for example, even having a communication, you know, uh, we, we, we first interact based on this energy transfer between two bodies. And, and as, as, you know, many leaders, I'm, I'm sure they've all heard, you know, the term of like, hey, this person being, brings great energy into the room. For example, you know, a person, I like to call it an energy donor, right? You know, there are people who just ooze of this energy and this positivity and they fill the room with this energy that people go, wow, you know, that's electrifying. But they can't really put their fingers on what is actually causing that. On the other hand, there are also people who are energy vampires who do exactly the opposite, right? You know, who kind of walk into the room and they just suck the life force out of the room. And, um, and, and so, so there is this interplay of energy that allows us to either be an energy donor or an energy vampire. And I've always found that really fascinating. And so, so for me, you know, as, I, as I've been working with this over the last couple of decades, is to come up with some form of tangible model that really the average Western brain understands, right? As, and, and including for myself, and again, you know, about simplicity. And what I, what I discovered through, you know, the research that I was doing and all of that kind of stuff is that, that there are really five, five different energies. And, and, we, and we project any one of these energies at any given moment, right? You know, so, so we all have these five energies and they're really just based on, you know, they, they depend on our moods. They depend on our, how we feel that day in terms of our, um, you know, how healthy we are, our fitness levels, all of those kind of things really dictate the type of energy that we can be projecting. And so, so we have a tendency to live in a dominant type of energy. And, um, and when, when we're in a leadership position, that, that energy would probably appeal to about 20% of the population because everybody else is in a different energy, right? And so, and so what that means is that if we are not consciously aware of the type of energy that we're projecting, we're really only appealing to a small percentage of, of the people in our environment, meaning that there are people out there who are not connecting with us, who are not feeling us in that, in that interplay type space, no matter how much we tell ourselves how great we might be as a leader, I can guarantee every single listener here of that if you are in some form of leadership or management role where you're managing people, there is somebody out there who thinks you are a horrible boss simply because you're not aware of the type of energy that you're projecting. No matter how hard you try to be a great boss, no matter all of these kind of things, it's almost impossible to please everybody out there on the planet. So somebody out there is going to be walking around saying, <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not, I don't, I'm not feeling this person, right? I'm not feeling this leader. And, and so, so what is most important about this is really understanding not so much what our default energy really is and what energy we live in, but actually understanding the ability to consciously project a certain energy, right? You know, to kind of be aware of what that actually energy is. And that comes with a level of mindfulness. And that's why mindful leadership is so important because it takes that level of self-awareness to say, hey, what, what kind of energy am I bringing into the room? And is this energy serving me? 
right? And so, and so that's the important question that we always want to be asking ourselves. What am I, what am I bringing into the room? And, and is this energy serving me? And if it isn't, then the third question would be which energy would serve me or would serve the organization, right? In this, in this case. And so what I've done is I've created a model around those five energies and I've given them very Western names, um, even though they, they do have like in Chinese, they're actually Chinese names around these energies, but I've just, I've just made them very, very Western. So we all understand them in plain English. And so what those energies are, I want you to think about a compass, a north, south, east, west type compass, where, where there's an east-west axis and a north-south axis. And the east-west axis is, is a forward-moving or retreating axis. So, so what I mean with that is that, let's say if to the west would be forward-moving energy, I like to call that determined energy. So that's when we're in a state of determination, when we're, when we're focusing on moving forward, when we're focusing on getting the job done, when we're focusing on, on tasks, for example, on all of this, kind of, but when we're also focused on mobilizing people, all of those kinds of things, that tends to come from a level of determination. And, and it's what I like to call determined energy. And, and, in, and in martial arts, we learn how to push that energy out to forcefully to create more force. And, and we all do that in our own interactions and, and in life. Um, on the opposite end of that, of that spectrum is, is what I like to call inviting energy. And that's really the retreating, the pulling in of energy, the being a, ability to absorb energy, the ability to absorb perspectives and ideas and, you know, um, you know, different, different you know, perspectives, uh, different ways of operating, all of those kind of things come from that from that inviting energy that we uh, have. That's also a place where empathy lives, for example, our ability to connect with a person at an emotional level. And those tend to work like opposites. So there's that pushing energy and then there's a retreating energy. And of course, in, in Tai Chi, we use that and we call that yin and yang. So in yin and yang is that flow of energy where the forward are actually moving. So it's a very horizontal type flow of energy when we're using that in and interaction with other human beings. And then of course we have that north-south axis and that north-south axis is, is inspired from prana, from, from you know, the, the energy in, in, in especially in, in Ayurvedic medicine. And it comes down to the chakras. And if you look at the seven main chakras, they, they work in a vertical line. And, um, and so, so the north-south uh, axis is, is that north is what I like to call light energy. So that's pointing at the sky. That's kind of like, you know, where, where we live in lightness. That's where we have fun and we're joyful and we're spontaneous and carefree and all of those kind of things. And we, and we, and we literally, when we live in that level of lightness, we feel different. We, we operate different. We carry ourselves differently. You can even see in somebody's gait when they're walking, whether or not they're in light energy, because they're a lot more bouncy, for example, than somebody who is the opposite, which is really heavy energy. And heavy energy, of course, is being really serious, right? It's about like, oh, this is very important. And, uh, you know, we have to do the right thing and we have to follow procedure. And, um, you know, it's, it's where, where light energy is a place of carefreeness, is also a place of exploration, is a place of, of, you know, curiosity, for example, as where heaviness is then the opposite is really about, um, you know, kind of avoiding failure. Uh, you know, um, you know there, there's a fear element that comes into into living in a, in, a, in, a, in a state of heaviness, right? But, but that's really where we are grounded into, into the earth and our feet become like roots in the earth. 
And, and it's also a place where we can't be pushed around. It's also a place of discipline, for example, all of these kind of things. So, so, so those are the four main outskirts of energy. And of course, then there's a fifth one that I've left out so far. And that's the one that's right in the middle where those two accesses um, interact. And it's called neutral energy. And neutral is a space of mindfulness. It's just a space of being without necessarily having to float in any one of those directions and just to be there. And, um, and what I teach my leaders is the ability to operate from a place of neutrality and then be able to consciously choose which energy they need to flow into to be able to, you know, do they need to be in a space of lightness, right? Where they have to have fun with people and engage people and all of that kind of stuff. Or do they need to be in a place of determination where it's like, hey guys, we need to get this job done and this needs to happen, um, you know, and that ability to be able to flow with that energy but then immediately also once they're done to be able to pull back into neutral so that they can always be in that middle point and therefore consciously choose which energy they're going to go into at any given moment. And that's why, that's why that level of mindfulness and self-awareness is so important. Mm -hmm. Those are all so important. And I want to, because we're really at time, uh, I mm -hmm. want to really encourage my listeners to get a copy of your book because mm -hmm. I have found since reading it and really absorbing those five different aspects of energy that I notice my own more and mm -hmm. also notice the people around me more. And that Beautiful. whole idea of making that shift mm -hmm. consciously to match or at least not compete or mm -hmm. contrast with them so that we get in sync more quickly I just think it's it's so valuable and it's so different than thinking about a personality type and mm. stretching out of your comfort zone. It's exactly. it's operating at not that knowing level, going back to the three pillars, mm -hmm. but really the sensing of exactly. you know what's happening here and then mm. recognizing that and allowing yourself to feel it and then you know connecting all of that together because the goal, of course is having an enhanced relationship where mm -hmm. we are as efficient and effective as possible in our communication, in our relationship. So we achieve whatever it is we're trying to do, whether it's work-related or personal, because this works well in both situations. So mm -hmm. Marcel, you have shared so many valuable um, insights with my listeners today. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you so much you're for most being welcome. who you are and how you've integrated all these things and for the models that you've put together. It's mm -hmm. really a gift to the world. And so oh, I would you. love for you to tell folks, how can they get a copy of your book? And I didn't even mention your other one. So please mention <laughs> both of them, how, how they can get the books, how they can connect with you and learn more about your services. Absolutely. So, uh, so my first book is called Headstrong Performance. And that's actually, you know, coming at from a background of neuroscience is, is how do, how do leaders protect their brains, you know, while working under pressure. And um, that was what my research was on when I was when I was studying neuroscience. So a very important book, if you, if you are in that leadership space, and you're, you're concerned about protecting not your own brain, but also the brains of others, is there are some really um, simple and, and, you know, and effective techniques for us to be able to do that. And it's all laid out very, very nicely. So kind of with that neuroscience understanding. So, so if you're a bit of a neuroscience geek like me, uh, it's, a, it's a great book to read. Um, and of course, then, uh, you know, the second book, of course, the, 
you know, the horrible bosses. Um, the best way to, to get in touch with me and actually also to experience the five energies is going to the level5partners.com website. There's actually a free assessment that you can do on the website. So uh, you just you just fill out the assessment. It's, it's, it's 14 questions. Very, that takes five minutes. And it will give you an idea of the, the default energy that you tend to project in your day. And that will kind of open up some awareness in that space. And so it's, it's, it's level5partners.com. And five is written like a, a Roman numeral, so V. So it's levelvpartners.com. And go to the free assessments, take that. And of course, on there, you can find more information about books. There's, um, there's also a blended learning approach. There's, there is an online course, Learning the Five Energies Mastery, that you can also sign up for and do. It takes about a month to really fully master um, you know, the, the five energies and how to be able to use them to not only shift your own energy, but also help you shift the energy of others so that you really can come into that space where you can both walk out of a, of a collaboration as winners and, and, and creating that opportunity for yourself. So um, that would be the best way. Of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm always available if you have any questions. Uh, Amazon, of course, has my books as well. Um, you know, bookstores, uh, you know, they, they, you know, if you walk into a bookstore and you can ask for the book, um, you know, so, uh, so there are many different ways in which you can, um, connect with me and, uh, and, you know, and just, and feel free to reach out. You can reach out to me through the, through the website. Um, you know, my, my, uh, my email is marcel at, uh, levelvpartners.com. So very straightforward, uh, you know, feel free to shoot me an email and, um, and, and I'm, I'm happy to engage in, you know, and if you have any questions or anything like that. Great. Thank you so much, Marcel. And for folks welcome. that are listening to this, Marcel's last name, Donna, is spelled D-A-A-N-E. So thank you again, Marcel, and continue doing the important work that you're doing. The world needs you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me, too. It was so nice of you. You know, it's uh, even though it was four o'clock in the morning here, for me, because I'm in, in Singapore, it's, it's the gr- best way to wake, wake up. So you've, you've brought some such amazing energy uh, yourself. So thank you for, for sharing that. Thanks for tuning into my podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com and check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. While you're there, download the free facilitator guide to find out how to implement our unique peer coaching system. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.